Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. I'm Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of audiobooks from your favourite classic authors such as Orson Welles, Robert Louis Stevenson, John Steinbeck, and many more. Come join me on this journey to help get these books to the masses in an easy, accessible way. Let's start. Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. I'm Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of audiobooks from your favourite classic authors such as Orson Welles, Robert Louis Stevenson, John Steinbeck, and many more. Come join me on this journey to help get these books to the masses in an easy, accessible way. Let's start. The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck Chapter 13 The ancient, overloaded Hudson creaked and grunted to the highway at Sallysaw, and turned west, and the sun was blinding. But on the concrete road, Al built up his speed, because the flattening springs were not in danger anymore. From Sallysaw to Gore is 21 miles, and Hudson was doing 35 miles an hour. From Gore to Warner, 13 miles. Warner to Checketer, 14 miles. Checketer, a long jump to Henrietta, 34 miles. But a real town at the end of it. Henrietta to Castle, 19 miles. And the sun was overhead and the red fields, heated by the high sun, vibrated in the air. Al at the wheel, his face purposeful, his whole body listening to the car, his restless eyes jumping from the road to the instrument panel. Al was one with his engine, every nerve listening for weakness, for the thumps or squeals, hums and chattering that indicate a change that may cause a breakdown. He had become the soul of the car. Grandma, beside him on the seat, half-slept and whimpered in her sleep, opened her eyes to peer ahead and then dozed again. And Ma sat beside Grandma, one elbow out the window and the skin reddening under the fierce sun. Ma looked ahead too, but her eyes were flat and did not see the road or the fields the gas stations, the little eating sheds. She did not glance at them as the Hudson went by. Al shifted himself on the broken seat and changed his grip on the steering wheel and sighed. Makes a racket, but I think she's all right. God knows what she'll do if we got to climb a hill with the load we got. Got any hills between here and California, Ma? Ma turned her head slowly and her eyes came to life. Seems to me there's heels, she said. Course, I don't know, but seems to me I heard these heels, and even mountains, big ones. Grandma drew a long, whining sigh in her sleep. Al said, We'll burn right up if we got climbing to do. I have to throw some of this stuff. Maybe we shouldn't have brained that preacher. You'll be glad of that preacher for we're through, said Ma. That preacher'll help us. She looked ahead at the gleaming road again. Al steered with one hand and put the other on the vibrating gear shift lever. He had difficulty in speaking. His mouth formed the words silently before he said them aloud. Ma? She looked slowly round at him, her head swaying a little with the car's motion. You scared of going to a new place? Her eyes grew thoughtful and soft. You ain't scared? A little, 
she said. Only, it ain't like scared so much. I'm just a-settin' here, waitin'. When something happens that I gotta do something, I'll do it. You ain't thinking what it's gonna be like when we get there? You ain't scared it won't be nice like we thought? No, she said quickly. No, I ain't. I can't do that. It's too much. Living too many lives. Up ahead, there's a thousand lives we might live, but when it comes, it'll only be one. If I go ahead on all of them, it's too much. You got to live ahead because you're so young. But it's just the road going by for me. And it's just how soon they're going to want to eat some more pork bones. Her face tightened. That's all I can do. I can't do no more. All the rest get upset if I'd done any more than that. They all depend on me just thinking about that. Grandma yawned shrilly and opened her eyes. She looked wildly about. I got to get out, praise God, she said. First clump of brush, said Al. There's one up ahead. Brush or no brush, I got to get out, I tell you. And she began to whine. I got to get out, I got to get out. Al speeded up, and when he came to the low brush, he pulled up short. Ma threw the door open and half pulled the struggling lady out beside the road and into the bushes. And Ma held her so Grandma would not fall when she squatted. On top of the truck, the others stirred to life. Their faces were shining with sunburn, and they could not escape. Tom and Casey and Noah and Uncle John let themselves warily down. Ruthie and Winfield swarmed down the sideboards and went off into the bushes. Connie helped Rose of Sharon gently down. Under the canvas, Grandpa was awake, his head sticking out, but his eyes were drugged and watery and still senseless. He watched the others, but there was little recognition in his watching. Tom called to him. You want to come down, Grandpa? The old eyes turned listlessly to him. No, said Grandpa. For a moment, the fierceness came into his eyes. I ain't a-going, I tell you. Gonna stay like Muley. And then he lost interest again. Ma came back, helping Grandma up the banks to the highway. Tom, she said, get that pan of bones under the canvas in the back. We got to eat something. Tom got the pan and passed it around, and the family stood by the roadside, gnawing the crisp particles from the pork bones. Sure lucky we bring these along said Pa. Get so stiff up there I can't hardly move. Where's the water? Ain't it up with you? Ma asked. I set out that gallon jug. Pa climbed the sides and looked under the canvas. It ain't here. We must have forgot it. Thirst set in immediately. Winfield moaned, I want a drink! I want a drink! The men licked their lips suddenly conscious of their thirst, and a little panic started. Al felt the fear growing. We'll get water, the first service station come to. We need to get some gas, too. The family swarmed up the truck sites. Ma helped Grandma in and got in beside her. Al started the motor, and they moved on. Castle to Payden, 25 miles, and the sun passed the zenith and started down. And the radiator cap began to jiggle up and down, and the steam started to wish out.
Near Payton, there was a shack beside the road and two gas pumps in front of it, and beside a fence, a water faucet and a hose. Al drove in and nosed up the Hudson to the hose. As they pulled in, a stout man, red of face and arms, got up from a chair behind the gas pumps and moved towards them. He wore brown corduroys and suspenders and a polo shirt, and he had a cardboard sun helmet painted silver on his head. The sweat beaded down his nose and under his eyes and formed streams in the wrinkles of his neck. He strolled towards the truck, looking translucent and stern. You folks aim to buy anything? Gasoline or stuff? he asked. Al was out already, unscrewing the steaming radiator cap with the tips of his fingers, jerking his hand away to escape the spurt when the cap should come loose. Need some gas, mister. Got any money? Sure. Think we begging? The translucence left to the fat man's face. Well, that's all right, folks. Help yourself to water. And he hastened to explain, Road's full of people. Come in, use the water, dirty up the toilet, and then by God they steal stuff and don't buy nothing. Got no money to buy with. Come begging a gallon of gas to move on. Tom dropped angrily to the ground and moved towards the fat man. We're paying our way, he said fiercely. You got no call to give us a going over. We ain't asked you for nothing. I ain't, the fat man said quickly. The sweat began to soak through his short-sleeved polo. Just help yourself to water and go use the toilet if you want. Winfield had got the hose. He drank from the end and then turned the stream over his head and face and emerged dripping. It ain't that cool, he said. I don't know what the country's coming to, the fat man continued. His complaint had shifted now, and he was no longer talking to or about the Jodes. Fifty-six cars of folks go by every day. Folks moving west with kids and household stuff. Where are they going? What they gonna do? Doing the same as us, said Tom. Going someplace to live. Trying to get along, that's all. Well, I don't know what the country's coming to. I just don't know. Here's me trying to get along too. Think any of them big new cars stops here? No, sir. They go on to them yellow painting company stations in town. They don't stop no place like this. Most folks stops here ain't got nothing. Al flipped the radiator cap, and it jumped into the air with a head of steam behind it, and a hollow, bubbling sound came out of the radiator. On top of the truck, the suffering hound dog crawled timidly to the edge of the load and looked over, whimpering towards the water. Uncle John climbed up and lifted him down by the scruff of his neck. For a moment, the dog staggered on stiff legs, and then he went to lap the mud under the faucet. In the highway, the cars whizzed by, glistening in the heat, and the hot wind of their going fanned into the service station yard. Al filled the radiator with the hose. It ain't that I'm trying to get trade out of rich folk, the fat man went on. I'm just trying to get trade. Why, the folks that stop here begs gasoline, and they trades for gasoline. I could show you in my back room the stuff they trade for gas and oil. Beds and baby buggies and pots and pans. One family traded a doll their kid had for a gallon. And what I'm going to do with the stuff? Open a junk shop? My one fella wanted to give me his shoes for a gallon. And if I was that kind of fella, I bet I could get... He glanced at Ma and stopped. Jim Casey had wet his head and the drops still coursed down from his forehead, 
and his muscled neck was wet, and his shirt was wet. He moved over beside Tom. It ain't the people's fault, he said. How'd you like to sail the bed you sleep on for a tank full of gas? I know it ain't their fault. Every person I talk to is on the move for a damn good reason. But what's the country coming to? That's what I want to know. What's it coming to? Fella can't make a living no more. Folks can't make a living farming. Ask you, what's it coming to? Everybody I ask, they can't figure out. Fella wants to trade his shoes so he can get a hundred miles on. I can't figure out. He took off his silver hat and wiped his forehead with his palm. And Tom took off his cap and wiped his forehead with it. He went to the hose and wet the cap through and squeezed it and put it on again. Ma wiped a tin cup out through the sidebars of the truck and she took water to Grandma and Grandpa on top of the load. She stood on the bars and handed the cup to Grandpa and he wet his lips and then shook his head and refused more. The old eyes looked up at Ma in pain and bewilderment for a moment before the awareness receded again. Al started the motor and backed the truck to the gas pump. Fill her up, we'll take about seven, said Al. We'll give her six so she don't spill none. The fat man put the hose in the tank. I know it ain't their fault. No, sir, he said. I just don't know what the country's coming to. Relief and all, Casey said. I've been walking round the country. Everybody's asking that. What we coming to? Seems to me we don't never come to nothing. Always on that way. Always going and going. Why don't folks think about that? There's movement now. Because they got to. People moving. We know why. And we know how. Moving. Because they got to. That's why folks always move. Moving. Because they want something better than they got. And that's the only way they'll ever get it. Wanting it. And needing it. They'll go out and get it. It's being hurt that makes folks mad to fighting. I've been walking around the country and hearing folks talk like you. The fat man pumped the gasoline and the needle turned on the pump dial, recording the amount. Yeah, but what's it coming to? That's what I want to know. Tom broke in, irritably. Well, you ain't never going to know. Casey tries to tell you and you jest at the same thing over. I seen fellas like you before. You ain't asking nothing. You're just singing a kind of song. What's we coming to? You don't want to know. Country's moving round, going places. Folks dying all round. Maybe you'll die pretty soon, but you won't know nothing. I seen too many folks like you. You don't want to know nothing. Just sing yourself to sleep with a song, What's We Coming To? He looks at the gas pump, rusted and old, and at the shack behind it, built of old lumber, the nail holes of its first use still showing through the brave yellow paint that had cried to imitate the big company stations in town. But the paint could not cover the old nail holes and the old cracks in the lumber, and the paint could not be renewed. The imitation was a failure, and the owner had known it was a failure. And inside the open door of the shack, Tom saw the old barrels, only two of them, and the candy counter with stale candies and licorice whips turning brown with age, and cigarettes. He saw the broken chair and the fly screen with the rusted hole in it, 
and the lizard yard that should have been graveled, and behind, the cornfield, drying and dying in the sun. Beside the house, the little stock of used tyres and retreaded tyres. And he saw for the first time the fat man's cheap-washed pants, and his cheap polo shirt, and his paper hat. He said, I don't mean to stand off at you, mister. It's, it's the heat. You ain't got nothing. Pretty soon you'll be on the road yourself. And it ain't tractors that'll put you there. It's them pretty yell stations in town. Folks is moving. He said, ashamedly. And you'll be moving, mister. The fat man slowed on the pump and stopped while Tom spoke. He looked worriedly at Tom. How'd you know? He asked, helplessly. How'd you know we was already talking about packing and moving west? Casey answered him. It's everybody, he said. Here's me that used to give all my fight against the devil because I figured the devil was the enemy. But there's something worse than the devil got a hold of the country and it ain't gonna let go till it's chopped loose. Ever see one of them gila monsters take hold, mister? Grabs hold of you and chop him in two and his head hangs on. Chop him at the neck and his head hangs on. Gotta take a screwdriver and pry his head apart to get him loose. And while he's laying there, poison is dripping and dripping into the hole he's made with his teeth. He stopped and looked sideways at Tom. The fat man stared hopelessly straight. His hand started turning the crank slowly. I don't know what we're coming to, he said softly. Over by the water hose, Connie and Rose of Sharon stood together, talking secretly. Connie washed the tin cup and felt the water with his finger before he filled the cup again. Rose of Sharon watched the cars go by on the highway. Connie held out the cup to her. This water ain't cool, but it's wet, he said. She looked at him and smiled secretly. She was all secrets now she was pregnant. Secrets and little silences that seemed to have meanings. She was pleased with herself, and she complained about things that didn't really matter. And she demanded services of Connie that were silly, and both of them knew they were silly. Connie was pleased with her too, and filled with wonder that she was pregnant. He liked to think he was in on the secrets she had. When she smiled slyly, he smiled slyly too and they exchanged confidences in whispers. The world had drawn close around them, and they were in the centre of it. Or rather, Rose of Sharon was in the centre of it, with Connie making a small orbit about her. Everything they said was a kind of secret. She drew her eyes from the highway. I ain't very thirsty, she said daintily, but maybe I ought to drink. And he nodded, for he knew well what she meant. She took the cup, and rinsed her mouth, and spat, and then drank the cupful of tepid water. One another? he asked. Just a half. And so he filled the cup, just half, and gave it to her. A Lincoln Zephyr, silvery and low, whisked by. She turned to see where the others were, and she saw them clustered about the truck. Reassured, she said, how do you like to be going along in there? Connie sighed. Maybe after, 
They both knew what he meant. And if there's plenty of work in California, we'll get our own car. But them, he indicated the disappearing Zephyr. Them kind cost as much as a good-sized house. I'd rather have the house. I'd like to have the house and one of them, she said. But of course the house would be first because... And they both knew what she meant. They were terribly excited about the pregnancy. You feel all right? He asked. Tired, just tired riding in the sun. We got to do that or we won't never get to California. I know, she said. The dog wandered, sniffing past the truck, trotted to the puddle under the hose again and lapped at the muddy water. And then he moved away, nose down and ears hanging. He sniffed his way among the dusty weeds beside the road to the edge of the pavement. He raised his head and looked across and then started over. Rose of Sharon screamed shrilly. A big swift car whisked near, tires squealed. And with a shriek, cut off in the middle, went under the wheels. The big car slowed for a moment, and faces looked back, and then it gathered greater speed and disappeared. The dog, a blot of blood, and tangled, burst intestines, kicked slowly in the road. Rose of Sharon's eyes were wide. Think it'll hurt? Connie put his arm around her. Come sit down, he said. It wasn't nothing. But it felt hurt. I I, I felt it jar when I yelled. Come sit down. It wasn't nothing. It, It won't hurt. He led her to the side of the truck, away from the dying dog, and sat her down on the running board. Tom and Uncle John walked out to the mess. The last quiver was going out of the crushed body. Tom took it by the legs and dragged it to the side of the road. Uncle John looked embarrassed, as though it were his fault. I ought to tie him up, he said. Pa looked down at the dog for a moment, and then he turned away. Let's get out of here, he said. I don't know how we was going to feed him anyways. Just as well, maybe. The fat man came from behind the truck. I'm sorry, folks, he said. A dog just don't last no time near a highway. I had three dogs run over in a year. Don't keep none no more. Don't you folks worry none about it. I'll take care of him, bury him out in the cornfield. Ma walked over to Rose of Sharon, where she sat, still shuddering on the running board. You all right, Rose of Sharon? She asked. You feeling poorly? I seen that. Give me a start. I heard you yip, said Ma. Get yourself laced up now. You suppose it might hurt? No, said Ma. If you go to greasing yourself and feeling sorry and tucking yourself in a swallow's nest, it might. Rise up now and help me get Grandma comfortable. Forget that baby for a minute. He'll take care of himself. Where is Grandma? Rose of Sharon asked. I don't know. She's around here somewheres. Maybe in the outhouse. The girl went towards the toilet, and in a moment she came out, helping Grandma along. She went to sleep in there, said Rose of Sharon. Grandma grinned. It's nice in there, she said. They got a patent toilet in there and the water comes down. I like it in there, she said contentedly. Would have took a good nap if I wasn't woke up.
It ain't a place to sleep, said Rose of Sharon, and she helped Grandma into the car. Grandma settled herself, happily. Maybe it ain't nice for purdy, but it's nice for nice, she said. Tom said, let's go, we gotta make miles. Paul whistled, shrilly. Now where them kids go? He whistled again, putting his fingers in his mouth. In a moment, they broke from the cornfields, Ruthie ahead and Winfeld trailing her. Eggs! Ruthie cried. I got self eggs! She rushed close with Winfeld close behind. Look! A dozen soft, greyish-white eggs were in her grubby hand. And as she held her hand, her eyes fell upon the dead dog beside the road. Oh, she said. Ruthie and Winfeld walked slowly toward the dog. They inspected him. Come on, you, lest you want to get left. They turned solemnly and walked to the truck. Ruthie looked once more at the grey reptile eggs in her hand, and then she threw them away. They climbed up the side of the truck. His eyes were still open, said Ruthie in a hushed tone. But Winfeld gloried in the scene. He said boldly, his guts were just strolled all over, all over. He was silent for a moment. Strode all over, he said, and then he rolled over quickly and vomited down the truck. When he sat up again, his eyes were watery and his nose running. It ain't like killing pigs, he said in explanation. Al had the hood of the Hudson up and checked the oil level. He brought a gallon can from the floor of the front and poured a quantity of cheap black oil into the pipe and checked the level again. Tom came beside him. Want I should take her a pace? He said. I ain't tired, said Al. Well, you didn't get no sleep last night. I took a snooze this morning. Get up on top. I'll take her. All right, said Al, reluctantly. Wash the oil gauge pretty close. Take her slow. I've been watching for a short. Take a look at the needle now and then. If she jumps to discharge, it's a short. And, and take her slow, Tom. She's overloaded. Tom laughed. I'll watch her, he said. You can rest easy. The family piled on top of the truck again. Ma settled herself beside Grandma in the seat, and Tom took his place and started the motor. Sure is loose, he said, and he put her in gear and pulled away down the highway. The motor droned along steadily, and the sun receded down the sky in front of them. Grandpa slept steadily, and even Ma dropped her head forward and dozed. Tom pulled his cap over his eyes to shut out the blinding sun. Payden to Mika is 13 miles. Mika to Hurrah is 14 miles. And then Oklahoma City. The big city. Tom drove straight on. Ma waked up and looked at the streets as they went through the city. And the family, on top of the truck, stared out at the stores, at the big houses, at the office buildings. And then the buildings grew smaller, and the stores smaller. The wrecking yards, and the hot dog stands. The out-city dance halls. Ruthie and Winfeld saw it all, and it embarrassed them with its bigness and its strangeness, and it frightened them with the fine-clothed people they saw. They did not speak of it to each other, 
Later, they would, but not now. They saw the oil derricks on the edge of town. Oil derricks, black, and the smell of oil and gas in the air. But they didn't exclaim. It was so big and so strange, it frightened them. In the street, Rose of Sharon saw a man in a light suit. He wore white shoes and a flat straw hat. She touched Connie and indicated the man with her eyes, and then Connie and Rose of Sharon giggled softly to themselves. And the giggles got the best of them. They covered their mouths, and it felt so good that they looked for other people to giggle at. Ruthie and Winfeld saw them giggling, and it looked such fun that they tried to do it too. But they couldn't. The giggles wouldn't come. But Connie and Rose of Sharon were breathless and red with stifling laughter before they could stop. It got so bad they had only to look at each other to start over again. The outskirts were widespread. Tom drove slowly and carefully in the traffic, and then they were on the 66, the great western road, and the sun was sinking on the line of the road. The windshield was bright with dust. Tom pulled his cap lower over his eyes, so low that he had to tilt his head back to see out of it at all. Grandma slept on, the sun on her closed eyelids, and the veins on her temples were blue, and the little bright veins on her cheeks were wine-coloured, and the old brown marks on her face turned darker. Tom said, We might stay on this road straight through. Ma had been silent for a long time. Maybe we'd better find a place to stop for sunset, she said. I gotta get some pork a boiling and some bread, mate. That takes time. Sure, Tom agreed. We ain't gonna make this trip in one jump. Might as well stretch ourselves. Oklahoma City to Bethany is 14 miles. Tom said, I think we better stop before the sun goes down. Al got to build that thing on top. Sun'll kill the folks up there. Ma had been dozing again. Her head jerked upright. Gotta get supper cooking, she said. And she said, Tom, your pa told me about you crossing state line. He was a long time answering. Yeah? What about it, Ma? Well, I'm scared about it. It'll make you kinda running away. Maybe they catch you. Tom held his hand over his eyes to protect himself from the lowering sun. Don't you worry, he said. I figured her out. There's lots of fellas out on parole, and there's more going in all the time. If I get caught for anything else out west, well, then they got my picture and my prints in Washington. They'll send me back. But if I don't do no crimes, they won't give a damn. Well, I'm scared about it. Sometimes you do a crime, and you don't even know it's bad. Maybe they got crimes in California we don't know about. Maybe you're going to do something, and it's all right, and in California, it ain't all right. Be just the same if I wasn't on parole, he said. Only if I get caught, I get a bigger jolt than other folks. Now you quit worrying, he said. We got plenty to worry about without you figuring out things to worry about. I can't help it, she said. Minute you cross line, you done a crime. Well, that's better than sticking around Sally saw and starving to death, he said. We better look out for a place to stop. They went through Bethany and out the other side. In a ditch where a culvert went over the road, an old touring car was pulled off the highway 
and a little tent was pitched beside it, and smoke came out of a stovepipe through the tent. Tom pointed ahead. There's some folks camping. Looks as good a place as we've seen. He slowed his motor and pulled to a stop beside the road. The hood of the old touring car was up, and a middle-aged man stood looking down at the motor. He wore a cheap straw sombrero, a blue shirt, and a black spotted vest, and his jeans were stiff and shiny with dirt. His face was lean, the deep cheek lines great furrows down his face so that his cheekbones and chin stood out sharply. He looked up at the Joe truck, and his eyes were puzzled and angry. Tom leaned out of the window. Any law against folks stopping here for the night? The man had only seen the truck. His eyes focused down on Tom. I don't know, he said. We only stopped here because we couldn't get no further. Any water here? The man pointed to a service station shack about a quarter of a mile ahead. There's water there they'll let you take a bucket off. Tom hesitated. Well, you suppose we could camp down alongside? The lean man looked puzzled. We don't own it, he said. We only stop here because this goddamn old trap wouldn't go no further. Tom insisted. Anyways, you're here and we ain't. You got right to say if you want neighbours or not. The appeal to hospitality had an instant effect. The lean face broke into a smile. Why, sure. Come off the road. Proud to have you. And he called. Sari, there's some folks going to stay with us. Come out and say how'd you do. Sarah ain't well, he added. The tent flaps opened, and a wizened woman came out, a face wrinkled as a dry leaf, and eyes that seemed to flare in her face, black eyes that seemed to look out of a well of horrors. She was small and shuddering. She held herself upright by a tent flap, and the hand holding onto the canvas was a skeleton, covered with wrinkled skin. When she spoke... Her voice had a beautiful low timbre, soft and modulated, and yet with ringing overtones. Tell em welcome, she said. Tell em good and welcome. Tom drove off the road and brought his truck into the field and lined it up with the touring car. And people boiled down from the truck, Ruthie and Winfeld too quickly so that their legs gave way and they shrieked at the pins and needles that ran through their limbs. Ma went quickly to work. She untied the three-gallon bucket from the back of the truck and approached the squealing children. Now you go get water right down there. Ask nicely, say please can we get a bucket of water, and say thank you, and carry it back together, helping, and don't spill none. And if you see stick word to burn, bring it on. The children stamped away towards the shack. By the tents, a little embarrassment had set in, and the social intercourse had paused before it started. Pa said, you ain't Oklahoma, folks. And Al, who stood near the car, looked at the license plate. Kansas, he said. The lean man said Galena, or right about there. Wilson, Ivy Wilson. We're Jodes, said Pa. We come right from near Salisaw. Well, we're proud to meet you folks, said Ivy Wilson. Sari, these is Jodes. I knowed you wasn't Oklahoma, folks. You talk queer, kinda. That ain't no blame, you understand. Everybody says we're different, said Ivy. Arkansas folks says I'm different, and Oklahoma folks says I'm different. 
and we seen a lady from Massachusetts, and she said some differentness at all. Couldn't hardly make out what she was saying. Noah and Uncle John and the preacher began to unload the truck. They helped Grandpa down and sat him on the ground, and he sat limply, staring ahead of him. You sick, Grandpa? Noah asked. You got damn right, said Grandpa weakly. Sicker in hell. Sari Wilson walked slowly and carefully towards him. How'd you like to come in our tent? She asked. You can lay down on our mattress and rest. He looked up at her, drawn by her soft voice. Come on now, she said. You'll get some rest. We'll help you over. Without warning, Grandpa began to cry, and his chin wavered, and his old lips tightened over his mouth, and he sobbed hoarsely. Ma rushed over to him and put her arms around him. She lifted him to his feet, her broad back straining, and she half lifted, half helped him to the tent. Uncle John said, He must be good and sick. He ain't never done that before. Never seen him blubbering in my life. He jumped up on the truck and tossed a mattress down. Ma came out of the tent and went to Casey. You been around sick people? She said. Grandpa's sick. Won't you go take a look at him? Casey walked quickly to the tent and went inside. A double mattress was on the ground. The blankets spread neatly and a little tin stove stood on iron legs and the fire in it burned unevenly. A bucket of water, a wooden box of supplies, and a box for a table. That was all. The light of the setting sun came pinkly through the tent walls. Sari Wilson knelt on the ground beside the mattress, and Grandpa lay on his back. His eyes were open, staring upward, and his cheeks were flushed. He breathed heavily. Casey took the skinny old wrist in his fingers. Feeling kind of tired, Grandpa? He asked. The staring eyes moved towards his voice, but did not find him. The lips practiced a speech, but did not speak it. Casey felt the pulse, and he dropped the wrist and put his hand on Grandpa's forehead. A struggle began in the old man's body. The legs moved restlessly, and his hands stirred. He said a whole string of blurred sounds that were not words and his face was red under the spiky white whiskers. Sari Wilson spoke softly to Casey. Know what's wrong? He looked up at the wrinkled face and the burning eyes. Do you? I think so. What? Casey asked. Might be wrong. I wouldn't like to say. Casey looked back at the twitching red face. Would you say, maybe, he's working up a stroke? I'd say that, said Sari. I've seen it three times before. From outside came the sounds of camp making, wood chopping, and the rattle of pans. Ma looked through the flaps. Grandma wants to come in. Would she better? The preacher said, She'll just fray if she don't. Think he's all right? Ma asked. Casey shook his head, slowly. Ma looked quickly down at the struggling old face with blood pounding through it. She drew outside, and her voice came through. He's all right, Grandma. He's just taking a little rest. 
and Grandma answered sulkily, Well, I want to see him. He's a tricky devil. He wouldn't never let you know. And she came scurrying through the flaps. She stood over the mattress and looked down. What's the matter with you? She demanded of Grandpa. And again, his eyes reached towards her voice and lips writhed. He's sulking, said Grandma. I told you he was tricky. He's going to sneak away this morning so he wouldn't have to come. And then his hip got a hurtin', she said disgustedly. He's just sulking. I seen him when he wouldn't talk nobody before. Casey said gently, He ain't sulking, Grandma. He's sick. Oh. She looked down at the old man again. Sick? Bad? You think? Purry bad, Grandma. For a moment, she hesitated, uncertainly. Well, she said quickly, Why ain't you praying? You're a preacher, ain't you? Casey's strong fingers blundered over Grandma's wrists and clasped around it. I told you, Grandma, I ain't preaching no more. Pray anyway, she ordered. You know all the stuff by heart. I can't, said Casey. I don't know what to pray for, or who pray to. Grandma's eyes wandered away and came to rest on Sari. He won't pray, she said. Did I ever tell you how Ruthie prayed when she was little Skinner? Says, now I lay me down to sleep, and I pray the Lord keep my soul safe. And when she got there, the cupboard was bare, and so the poor dog got none. Amen. That's just what she done. The shadow of someone walking between the tent and the sun crossed the canvas. Grandpa seemed to be struggling. All his muscles twitched. And suddenly, he jarred, as though through a heavy blow. He lay still, and his breath was stopped. Casey looked down at the old man's face, and saw that it was turning blackish purple. Sari touched Casey's shoulder. She whispered, His tongue! His tongue! His tongue! Casey nodded, Get in front of Grandma! He pried the tight jaws apart and reached into the old man's throat for the tongue. And as he lifted it clear, a rattling breath came out, and a sobbing breath was indrawn. Casey found a stick on the ground and held down the tongue with it, and the uneven breath rattled in and out. Grandma hopped about like a chicken. Pray, she said. Pray, you! Pray, I tell you! Sari tried to hold her back. Pray, God damn you! Grandma cried. Casey looked up at her for a moment. The rasping breath came louder and more unevenly. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Glory! shouted Grandma. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. A long, gasping sigh came from the open mouth, and then a crying release of air. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us. The breathing had stopped. Casey looked down into Grandpa's eyes, and they were clear and deep and penetrating, and there was a knowing, serene look in them. Hallelujah, said Grandma. Go on. 
I man, said Casey. Grandma was still then, and outside the tent, all the noise had stopped. A car whished by on the highway. Casey still knelt on the floor beside the mattress. The people outside were listening, standing quietly, intent of the sounds of dying. Sairi took Grandma by the arm and led her outside, and Grandma moved with dignity and held her head high. She walked for the family and held her head straight for the family. Sairi took her to a mattress lying on the ground and sat her down on it, and Grandma looked straight ahead, proudly, for she was on show now. The tent was still, and at last, Casey spread the tent flaps with his hands and stepped out. Pa asked softly, What was it? Stroke, said Casey. A good, quick stroke. Life began to move again. The sun touched the horizon and flattened over it. And along the highway, there came a long line of huge freight trucks with red sides. They rumbled along, putting a little earthquake in the ground, and the standing exhaust pipes sputtered blue smoke from the diesel oil. One man drove each truck, and his relief man slept in a bunk high up against the ceiling. But the trucks never stopped. They thundered, day and night, and the ground shook under their heavy march. The family became a unit. Pa squatted down on the ground, and Uncle John beside him. Pa was the head of the family now. Ma stood behind him. Noah and Tom and Al squatted, and the preacher sat down and then reclined on his elbows. Connie and Rose of Sharon walked at a distance. Now, Ruthie and Winfeld, clattering up with a bucket of water held between them, felt the change, and they slowed up and set down the bucket and moved quietly to stand with Ma. Grandma sat proudly, coldly, until the group was formed, until no one looked at her, and then she lay down and covered her face with her arm. The red sun set and left a shining twilight on the land so that the faces were bright in the evening and the eyes shone in reflection of the sky. The evening picked up light where it could. Pa said, It was in Mr. Wilson's tent. Uncle John nodded. He loaned us his tent. Fine, friendly folks, Pa said softly. Wilson stood by his broken car, and Sairi had gone to the mattress to sit beside Grandma. But Sairi was careful not to touch her. Pa called. Mr. Wilson! The man scuffed near and squatted down, and Sairi came and stood beside him. Pa said, We're thankful to you folks. We're proud to help, said Wilson. We're beholden to you, said Pa. There's no beholden in time of dying, said Wilson, and Sairi echoed him. Never no beholden. Al said, I'll fix your car, me and Tom will. And Al looked proud that he could return the family's obligation. We could use some help, Wilson admitted the retiring of the obligation. Pa said, We gotta figure what to do. These laws, 
you have to report a death, and, and when you do that, they either take $40 for the undertaker, or they take him for a pauper. Uncle John broke in. We never did have no paupers. Tom said, Maybe we gotta learn. We never got booted off no land before, neither. We done it clean, said Pa. There can't be no blame laid on us. We never took nothing we couldn't pay for. We never suffered no man's charity. When Tom here got in trouble, we could hold up our heads. He only done what any man would done. Then what'll we do? Uncle John asked. We go in, like the law says, and they'll come out for him. We only got a hundred and fifty dollars. They take forty to bury Grandpa and we won't get to California, or else they'll bury him in a pauper. The men stirred, restively, and they studied the darkening ground in front of their knees. Pa said softly, Grandpa buried his paw with his own hand, done it in dignity, and shaped the grave nice with his own shovel. That was the time when a man had the right to be buried by his own son, and a son had the right to bury his own father. The law says differently now, said Uncle John. Sometimes the law can't be followed no way, said Pa. Not in decency anyways. There's lots of times you can't. When Floyd was loose and going wild, law says we gotta give him up, and nobody give him up. Sometimes a fella gotta sift the law. I'm saying now, I got the right to bury my own Pa. Anybody got something to say? The preacher rose high on his elbow. Law changes, he said, but gots to go on. You got the right to do what you gotta do. Pa turned to Uncle John. It's your right too, John. You got any words against? No words against, said Uncle John. Only, it's like hiding him in the night. Grandpa's way was to come out a shooting. Pa said ashamedly, we can't do like Grandpa done. We got to get to California for our money gives out. Tom broke in. Sometimes fellow work and dig up a man, and then they raise hell and figure he'd been killed. The government got more interest in a dead man than a live one. They'll go hell scrape and try and figure out who he was and how he died. I offer we put a note of writing in a bottle and lay it with Grandpa, tell him who he is and how he died and why he's buried here. Pa nodded in agreement. That's good. Wrote out in a nice hand. Be not so lonesome, too. Knowing his name's there with him. Not just old fella, lonesome underground. Any more stuff to say? The circle was silent. Pa turned his head to Ma. You'll lay him out? I'll lay him out, said Ma. But who's to get supper? Sari Wilson said. I'll get supper. You go right ahead, mean that big girl of yourn. Well, we sure thank you, said Ma. Noah, you get into them kegs and bring out some nice pork. Salt won't be deep in it yet, but it'll be right nice eating. We got half a sack of potatoes, said Sari. Ma said, give me two half dollars. Pa dug into his pocket and gave her the silver. She found the basin, filled it full of water, and went into the tent. It was nearly dark in there. Sari came in and lighted a candle and stuck it upright on a box, and then she went out. For a moment, Ma looked down at the dead old man, and then, in pity, she tore a strip from her own apron 
and tied up his jaw. She straightened his limbs and folded his hands over his chest. She held his eyelids down and laid a silver piece on each one. She buttoned his shirt and washed his face. Sairi looked in, saying, Can I give you any help? Ma looked up, slowly. Come in, she said. I'd like to talk to you. That's a good big girl you got, said Sari. She's right in peeling potatoes. What can I do to help? I was gonna wash Grandpa all over, said Ma. But he got no other clothes to put on, and, of course, your quilt's spoiled. I can't never get the smell of death from a quilt. I seen a dog growl and shake on a mattress that my ma died on, and that was two years later. We'll wrap him in your quilt. We'll make it up to you. We got a quilt for you. Sari said, You shouldn't talk like that. We're proud to help. I ain't felt so safe in a long time. People needs to help. Ma nodded. They do, she said. She looked long into the old whiskery face, with its bound jaw and silver eyes shining in the candlelight. He ain't gonna look natural. We'll wrap him up. The old lady took it good. Why, she's old, said Ma. Maybe she don't even know rightly what happened. Maybe she won't really know for quite a while. Besides, us folks takes pride holding in. My pa used to say, anybody can break down. It takes a man not to. We always try to hold in. She folded the quilt neatly about Grandpa's legs and around his shoulders. She brought the corner of the quilt over his head like a cowl and pulled it down over his face. Sairi handed her half a dozen big safety pins and she pinned the quilt neatly and tightly about the long package. And at last, she stood up. It won't be a bad burying, she said. We got a preacher to see him in and his folks is all round. Suddenly, she swayed a little and Sairi went to her and steadied her. It's sleep, Ma said in a shamed tone. No, I'm all right. I've been so busy getting ready, you see. Come out in the air, Sairi said. Yeah, I'm all done in here. Sairi blew out the candle, and the two went out. A bright fire burned in the bottom of a little gulch, and Tom, with two sticks and wire, had made supports from which two kettles hung and bubbled furiously, and good steam poured out under the lids. Rose of Sharon knelt on the ground, out of range of the burning heat, and she had a long spoon in her hand. She saw Ma come out of the tent, and she stood up and went to her. Ma, she said, I got to ask. Ma asked, Why, you can't get through nine months without sorrow? But will it hurt the baby? Ma said, There used to be a saying, A child born out of sorrow will be happy child. Isn't that so, Mrs. Wilson? I heard it like that said Sairi, and I heard the other, born out of too much joy, will be a doleful boy. I'm all jumpy inside, said Rose of Sharon. Well, we ain't none of us jumping for fun, said Ma. You just keep watching the pots. On the edge of the ring of firelight, the men had gathered. For tools, they had a shovel and a mat hock. Pa marked out the ground, eight feet long, 
and three feet wide. The work went on in relays. Pa chopped the earth with the mattock, and then Uncle John shoveled it out. Al chopped, and Tom shoveled. Noah chopped, and Connie shoveled. And the whole drove down, for the work never diminished in speed. The shovels of dirt flew out of the hole in quick spurts. When Tom was shoulder deep in the rectangular pit, he said, "How deep, Pa? Good and deep. Couple feet more. You get out now, Tom, and get that paper roll." Tom boosted himself out of the hole, and Noah took his place. Tom went to Ma, where she tended the fire. "We got any paper and pen, Ma?" Ma shook her head slowly. "No." That's one thing we didn't bring. She looked towards Sairi, and the little woman walked quickly to her tent. She brought back a Bible and a half pencil. Here, she said. There's a clean page in the front. Use that and tear it out. She handed the book and pencil to Tom. Tom sat down in the firelight. He squinted his eyes in concentration, and at last wrote slowly and carefully on the end of the paper. In big, clean letters. This here is William James Jode, died of a stroke. Old, old man. His folks buried him here because they got no money to pay for funerals. Nobody killed him, just a stroke, and he died. He stopped. Ma, listen to this. He read it slowly to her. Why, sounds nice, she said. Can't you stick on something from scripture so it'll be religious? Open it up and get it saying something, something out of scripture. Gotta be short," said Tom. "I ain't got much room left on the page." Cyrus said, "How about God have mercy on his soul?" "No," said Tom. "Sounds too much like it was hung. I'll I'll copy something." He turned to the pages and read. Mumbling his lips, saying the words under his breath, "Here's a good short one," he said. And Lot said unto them, "Oh, not so, my lord." Don't mean nothing," said Ma. "Long as you're going to put one down, might as well mean something." Cyrus said, "Turn to Psalms over further. You can always get something out of Psalms." Tom flipped the pages and looked down the verses. Now here is one," he said. This here's a nice one, just blowed full of religion. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How's that? That's real nice," said Ma. "Put that one in." Tom wrote it carefully. Ma rinsed and wiped a fruit jar, and Tom screwed the lid down tight on it. Maybe the preacher ought to write it," he said. Ma said, "No, preacher wasn't no kin." She took the jar from him and went into the dark tent. She unpinned the coverings and slipped the fruit jar under the thin, cold hands, and pinned the comforter tight again. And then she went back to the fire. The men came from the grave, their faces shining with perspiration. All right," said Pa. He and John and Noah and Al went into the tent. They came out. Carrying the long pinned bundle between them, they carried it to the grave. Pa leaped into the hole and received the bundle in his arms, and laid it gently down. Uncle John 
put out a hand and helped Pa out of the hole. Pa asked, How about Grandma? I'll see, said Ma. She walked over to the mattress and looked down at the old woman for a moment. Then she went back to the grave. Sleeping, she said. Maybe she'll hold it against me, but I ain't gonna wake her up. She's tired. Pa said, Where is the preacher? We ought to have a prayer. Tom said, I seen him walking down the road. He don't like to pray no more. Don't like to pray? No, said Tom. He ain't a preacher no more. He figures it ain't right to fool people acting like a preacher when he ain't a preacher. I bet he went away so nobody wouldn't ask him. Casey had come quietly near, and he heard Tom speaking. I didn't run away, he said. I help you folks, but I won't fool you. Pa said, won't you say a few words? Ain't none of us folks ever been buried without a few words. I'll say him, said the preacher. Connie led Rose of Sharon to the graveside. She reluctant. You got to, Connie said. It ain't decent not to. It'd just be a little. The firelight fell on the grouped people, showing their faces and their eyes dwindling on their dark clothes. All the hats were off now. The light danced, jerking over the people. Casey said, Nice drunken liquor. It'll be a short one. He bowed his head, and the others followed his lead. Casey said solemnly, This here old man just lived a life and just died out of it. I don't know whether it was good or bad, but that don't matter much. He was alive, and that's what matters. And he's now dead, and that don't matter. I heard a fella tell a poem one time, and he says, All that lives is holy. Got to thinking, and pretty soon it means more than the words say. And I wouldn't pray for an old fella that's dead. He's all right. He got a job to do, but it's all laid out for him, and there's only one way to do it. But us, we got a job to do. And there's a thousand ways, and we don't know which one to take. And if I was to pray, it'd be for the folks that don't know which way to turn. Grandpa here, he got the easy straight. And now, cover him up and let him get to his work. He raised his head. Pa said, Amen. And the others muttered, Amen. Then, Pa took the shovel, half-filled it with dirt, and spread it gently back into the hole. He handed the shovel to Uncle John, and John dropped in a shovelful. And then the shovel went from hand to hand until every man had his turn. And when all had taken their duty and their right, Pa attacked the mound of loose dirt and hurriedly filled the hole. The women moved back to the fire to see to supper. Ruthie and Winfeld watched, absorbed. Ruthie said solemnly, Grandpa's down under there and Winfeld looked at her with horrified eyes, and then he ran away to the fire, and sat on the ground, and sobbed to himself. Pa half filled the hole, and then he stood panting with the effort, while Uncle John finished it. And John was shaping the mound when Tom stopped him. Listen, Tom said, if we leave the grave they'll have it open in no time. 
We gotta hide it. We'll level her off, and we'll strew dried grass. We gotta do that. Pa said, I didn't think of that. It ain't right to leave a grave unmounded. Can't help it, said Tom. They're digging right up, and we get it for breaking the law. You know what I get if I break the law? Yeah, said Pa. I forgot that. He took the shovel from John and leveled the grave. She'll sink come winter, he said. Can't help that, said Tom. We'll be long ways off by winter. Tromp her in good, and we'll strew stuff over her. When the pork and potatoes were done, the families sat about on the ground and ate. And they were quiet, staring into the fire. Wilson, tearing a slab of meat with his teeth, sighed with contentment. Nice eating, pig, he said. Well, we had a couple shouts, and we thought we might as well eat them. Can't get nothing for them. When we get kind of used to moving and Mark set up bread, why, it'll be pretty nice seeing the country and two kegs pork right in the truck. How long you folks been on the road? Wilson cleared his teeth with his tongue and swallowed. We ain't been lucky, he said. We been three weeks from home. Why, God almighty, we aim to be in California ten days or less. Al broke in. I don't know, Pa. Maybe with that load we're packing, we maybe ain't never gonna get there. Not if these mountains go over. They were silent about the fire. Their faces were turned downward, and their hair and foreheads showed in the firelight. Above the little dome of the firelight, the summer stars shone thinly, and the heat of the day was gradually withdrawing. On her mattress, away from the fire, Grandma whimpered, soft like a puppy. The heads of all turned in her direction. Ma said, Rosa Sean, like a good girl, go lay down with your grandma. She needs somebody now. She's knowing now. Rose of Sharon got to her feet and walked to the mattress and lay beside the old woman, and the murmur of their soft voices drifted to the fire. Rose of Sharon and Grandma whispered together on the mattress. Funny thing is, losing Grandpa made me feel no different than I done before. I ain't no sadder than I was. It's just the same thing, Casey said. Grandpa and the old place, they was just the same thing. Al said, it's a goddamn shame. He been talking what's he gonna do. How he gonna squeeze grapes over his head and let the juice run in his whiskers. And all stuff like that. Casey said, he was fooling all the time. I think he knowed it. And Grandpa didn't die tonight. He died the minute you took him off the place. You sure of that? Pa cried. Why, no. He was breathing, Casey went on. But he was dead. He was that place, and he knowed it. Uncle John said, Did you know he was a dying? Yeah, said Casey. I knowed it. John gazed at him, and a horror grew on his face. And he didn't tell nobody. What good? Casey asked. We, we, we might have did something. What? I don't know, but... No, said Casey. You couldn't have done nothing. Your way was fixed, and Grandpa didn't have no part in it. He didn't suffer none, not after first thing this morning. He just staying with the land. He couldn't leave it. 
Uncle John sighed deeply. Wilson said, We had to leave my brother, Will. The heads turned towards him. Him and me had fought it side by side. He's older than me. Neither one ever drove a car. Well, we went and we sold everything. Well, he bought him a car. And they give him a kid to show him how to use it. So the afternoon before we gonna start, Will and Aunt Minnie go practicing. Will, he comes to a bend in the road and he yells, Whoa! And yanks back. And he goes through a fence and he yells, Whoa, you bastard! And tromps down on the gas and goes over into a gulch. And there he was. Didn't have nothing more to sell and didn't have no car. But it were his own damn fault, praise God. He's so damn mad he won't come along with us. Just sit there a-cussing. What's he gonna do? I don't know. He's too mad to figure. And we couldn't wait. Only had $85 to go on. We couldn't set and cut it up. But we ended up anyways. Didn't go a hundred mile when a tooth in the rear end burst. It cost $30 to fix her. And then we gotta get a tire and... Then a spark plug cracked and Sayre got sick. Had to stop ten days, and now the goddamn car's busted again, and money's getting low. I don't know when we'll ever get to California. If I could only fix a car, but I don't know nothing about cars. Al asked importantly, What's the matter? Well, she just won't run. Starts and farts and stops. In a minute she'll start again, and then... In a minute she'll start again, and before you can get it going, she peters out again. Runs a minute, then dies? Yes, sir. And I can't keep her going no matter how much gas I give her. Got worse and worse, and now I ain't get her removing at all. Owl was very proud and mature then. I think you gotta plug gas line. I'll blow her out for you. And Pa was proud too. He's a good hand with a car, Pa said. Well, I sure thank you for a hand. I sure will. Makes a fella kind of feel like a little kid. When he can't fix nothing. When we get to California, I need to get me a nice car. Maybe she won't break down. Pa said, when we get there, getting there's the trouble. Oh, but she's worth it, said Wilson. Why, I've seen handbills how they need folk to pick fruit and good wages. Why, well, just think how it's gonna be. Under them shady trees, a-picking fruit, a-taking a bite every once in a while. Why, hell, they don't care how much you eat, because they got so much. And with them good wages, maybe a fella could get himself a little piece of land and work out for extra cash. Why hell, in a couple of years, I bet a fella will have a place of his own. Pa said, We seen them handbills. I got one right here. He took out his purse, and from it, a folded orange handbill. In black type, it said, Pea pickers, wanted in California. Good wages, all season. 800 pickers wanted. Wilson looked at it curiously. Why, that's the one I seen. The very same one. You suppose maybe they got all 800 already? Pa said, This is just one little part of California. Why, that's the second biggest state we got. Suppose they did get all them 800. There's plenty of space. I'd rather pick fruit anyways. Like he says, under them trees and picking fruit. Why, even the kids like to do that. Suddenly, Al got up and walked to the Wilson's touring car. You can't fix her tonight, Wilson said. I know, I'll get to her in the morning. Tom had watched his younger brother carefully. I was thinking something like that myself, he said. 
Noah asked, What you fellas talking about? Tom and Al went silent, each waiting for the other. You tell them, Al said finally. Well, maybe it's no good, and maybe it ain't the same thing, Al's thinking. Here she is, anyways. We got overload, but Mr. and Mrs. Wilson ain't. If some of us folks could ride with them and take some of their light stuff in the truck, we wouldn't break no springs, and we could get up hills, and and me and Al's both know about a car, so we could keep that car rolling. We'd keep together on the road, and it'd be good for everybody. Wilson jumped up. Why, sure. We'd be proud. We certainly would. You hear that, Sayre? It's a nice thing, said Sayre. Wouldn't be a burden on you folks? No, by God, said Pa. Wouldn't be no burden at all. You'd be helping us. Wilson settled back, uneasily. Well, I don't know. What's the matter? You don't want to? Well, you see, I only got about thirty dollars left, and I won't be no burden. Ma said, You won't be no burden. Each will help each, and we'll all get to California. Sari Wilson helped lay Grandpa out. She stopped. The relationship was plain. Al cried. That car will take six, easy. Say, me to drive, and Rosa Sean, and Connie, and Grandma. And then we take the big light stuff, and pile her on the truck. And we trade off every so often. He spoke loudly, for a load of worry was lifted from him. They smiled, shyly, and looked down at the ground. Pa fingered the dusty earth with his fingertips. He said, Ma favors a big white house with oranges growing around. There's a big picture on a calendar she's seen. Sairi said, If I get sick again, you got to go on and get there. We ain't a-going to burden. Ma looked carefully at Sairi. She seemed to see for the first time the pain-tormented eyes and the face that was haunted and shrieking with pain. And Ma said, We're going to see you get through. You said yourself, you can't let help go unwanted. Sairi studied her wrinkled hands in the firelight. We got to get some sleep tonight. She stood up. Grandpa, it's like he's dead a year, Ma said. The families moved lazily towards their sleep, yawning luxuriously. Ma sloshed the tin plates off a little and rubbed the grease free with flour sack. The fire died down and the stars descended. A few passenger cars went by on the highway now, but the transport trucks thundered by at intervals and put little earthquakes in the ground. In the ditch, the cars were hardly visible under the starlight. A tied dog howled at the service station down the road. The families were quiet and sleeping, and the field mice grew bold and scampered among the mattresses. Only Cyrie Wilson was awake. She stared into the sky and braced her body firmly against the pain. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please leave a review. And if you really want to support me, share this chapter with your friends, family, and whoever you feel would enjoy it. And if you really wish to support me, head to my Patreon. The link is in the episode notes. If you choose to follow the podcast, you'll have three new chapters per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Once again, I thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please leave a review. 
And if you really want to support me, share this chapter with your friends, family, and whoever you feel would enjoy it. And if you really wish to support me, head to my Patreon. The link is in the episode notes. If you choose to follow the podcast, you'll have three new chapters per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Once again, I thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.